this special bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's Managing Editor. And I'm Layla McNeil, one of the Editors-in-Chief of Lady Science Magazine. For this bonus episode, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Susan Stryker. Dr. Stryker is an Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies, Director of the Institute for LGBT Studies, and Founder of the Transgender Studies Initiative at the University of Arizona. She has written extensively about queer and transgender history and culture. She is the author of Transgender History and the co-editor of the Transgender Studies Reader. And she is the director of the Emmy award-winning documentary, Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Glad glad to be here. Just a, a quick correction. It's like I'm no longer the director of the Institute for LGBT Studies. We have a new director named Jill Koyama. So um, I did that job for five years and I'm happy to pass the baton to the the next leader. Awesome. Sorry about that. Thank you. No worries. I need to find out where I need to update my bio information on the web. (laughs) Thanks for flagging that for me. Yeah, and thanks for uh, flagging it for us, too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're, we're super excited to have you here. And um, just to get started, um, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to study transgender history and uh, what your scholarship is focused on? Uh, sure. Um, I'll just say I've always been interested in history. Um, I did a PhD in history at UC Berkeley. And... Um, you know, it was, um, it was, you know, back in the day, a ways I'm, you know, pushing 60 now. And this was back in the early 80s that I started grad school. And at that time, uh, you know, it really wasn't possible to do transgender history. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, publicly out as trans, but I was always really interested in the question of identity. You know, like how is it that new forms of um, both personal and collective identities take shape over time? Um, and you know, what's the kind of cultural work that identity does? I actually did my dissertation on early Mormon history. I did history of religion. And, but it was a question about identity. It was like, you know, in 1825, there's no such thing as a Mormon. You know, 1845 is like, there's an identity, there's a church, there's new forms of kinship, there's like a body of, you know, scriptural production, there's a transcontinental migration, there's a political movement, there's an anti-Mormon backlash. It's like, how does all of that cultural and political work get done, you know, and get articulated through the emergence of a previously non-existing identity. And so there's a way that it was kind of like, I would say a crypto trans or queer sort of dissertation, because what I did after grad school was rather than going into um, history of religion, it was more about history of sexuality. And I could kind of say, you know, we have this thing called a transsexual or a transgender person, but it's like there was a time when hormones and surgery, you know, weren't available to change your body or there weren't the legal mechanisms for changing your, you know, state issued IDs or there weren't even state issued IDs that existed. It's like, how is it that this thing called transgender like becomes something 
that exists and that we, you know, that it, that it, there's a cultural politics around it. So I just kind of shifted over from doing one kind of history to do another kind of history about the historicity of identity. But what, what motivated that for me is that as I was coming out as trans in my later twenties, um, you know, I had known all along that I had transgender feelings, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to deal with it or what I was going to do, or was I going to transition? Did I need to do that? And, you know, by the time I was in my 20s, it was like, yeah, I really need to do that. And that makes my job prospects really complicated because there's so much employment discrimination and stigma and misunderstanding around being trans. But when I felt like, mm, no, this is personally just what I need to do, then what does that mean for my work? You know, it's like, it was really hard, let's say, to like try to find a job as a history of, in the history of early 19th century US religion as an out trans person. You know, so it's like, well, why don't I like shift my focus away from history of religion to doing like history of gender and sexuality because that's, that's kind of what is made available for me to do you know it's like trans people can talk about being trans and that's kind of like often it's like all we're sort of allowed to do we get to be trans for other people uh, and i thought well i'm a trans person i'm a historian i should just be doing trans history because i'm interested in questions of the history of identity anyway so here we go so it was both um kind of a necessity uh, but it was also, you know, what I was able to find to do that like spoke to my skill set and let me use my training and, and do something that I actually really cared about. I think transgender history is utterly fascinating. Uh, one thing that I want to note for our readers or not readers, listeners, uh, is that in Screaming Queens, uh, you do, you do cover what it was like when these surgeries were becoming available and what having the language meant. And so we're going to link to that in uh, the show notes so that uh, you all can uh, get a little bit of an idea of what that history was like in the 70s. Um, A question that I have, uh, the work that you're doing at University of Arizona, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what transgender studies is generally and what the initiative is in particular? Yeah, well, I would say transgender studies is, you can think about it two ways. I mean, that you could think about it as there are these people called transgender people and we study them, that's transgender studies. But there's another way that you could think about it as like from a standpoint that takes the kind of knowledge that transgender people have, you know, experiential knowledge from living in the world as trans people. It's like, how do you take that knowledge and put it into conversation with, um, you know, other things that you might want to know or other kinds of expertise? And so like an example might be like disability studies. It's like, well, there are people who have disabilities and you could study people with disabilities, but if you come at the world from a sort of a disability perspective, it's like the world looks a little different. It's like suddenly you find yourself talking about things like, you know, curb cuts and, you know, uh, you know, wheelchair ramps or, you know, different ways of, um, you know, 
accessing signage on buildings or you're thinking about social policy related to, you know, bodily diversity and what gets called a disability and what doesn't. Or, you know, you could you could say be doing like, you know, African-American studies and you're studying people who are African-American. Uh, but you could maybe be thinking in a more sort of abstract or general way about like, how is it like ideas about race came about in the first place? And what does, you know, blackness have to do with, you know, other forms of racial minoritization? So that's kind of the other half of transgender studies. It's like you could study transgender people or you could look at the world through a transgender lens and uh, see how the world looks different when you look at it from that perspective. So um, anyway, I have been doing work in transgender studies for about 25 years at this point. I mean, it's not a new, a new field, even if it's just coming onto the radar screen. For some people now, as trans issues become more, um, you know, kind of more visible in society, um, and I actually feel very fortunate that uh, I've been able to do some of the work that I've been able to do at the University of Arizona. It's like it's not a place that many people would think of as like, oh, that you know, Arizona, that's going to be a hotbed of you know trans scholarship. <laughs> but um, you know, it's like who knew it was going to be the place. Um, I got recruited to come to the University of Arizona in 2011 um, uh, to be the director of the Institute for LGBT Studies. And, you know, as I was interviewing there, I said, well, you know, it's like I totally support, you know, queer studies and, you know, every letter of the, you know, the alphabet soup, the L, G, Bs and Ts, it's like I'm down for the whole thing as well as the Q. Uh, but, you know, my specialty is like I work on trans issues and I would love to like really, you know, kind of bring that to the foreground uh, as part of the, you know, kind of leadership that I'd like to exert here. And, you know, U of A was, um, they were basically like, great. It's like, there's not another university that's doing this. That'll help put us on the map in a different way. It's like, nice. let's, you know, let's go. And, you know, it's just been kind of amazing. We, um, you know, you know, besides support for the Institute and support for publishing this journal, TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, which is an academic peer-reviewed journal that has its editorial office um, in Tucson at the University of Arizona. It's published by Duke University Press, but it's run out of um, U of A. So they support that. They, they have sponsored um, this absolutely unprecedented um, hiring, like faculty hiring. It's like we have been able to hire four trans faculty members who do trans studies throughout the university in different fields, like medical anthropology and um, religious studies, um, you know, adolescent and family behavioral health, um, Chicano studies, um, feminist science studies. So it's like we were pulling together this very eclectic faculty in trans studies. And, you know, all of these faculty are working with their grad students and, you know, teaching classes and directing dissertations. And, you know, it's just, it's been really exciting to see trans studies get a kind of um, institutional footholds at a university and to just you know, like see what we can do when we're you know 
sort of given some resources and some some turf, some you know, some some conceptual turf as well as like you know literal you know office space and and uh, salaries to do the kind of work that that we all want to do. Yeah, and it just that it's it's such a, a fascinating and wonderful thing for the university to throw themselves behind. I feel like so often universities can can talk a great talk about diversity and all that jazz. Uh, but um, yeah, putting institutional weight behind it just seems like such a special opportunity there. Yeah. 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 You know, and the thing that really surprised me, you know, my, um, my own personal politics are, you know, sort of pretty much on the left end of the spectrum and I can be very, you know, harsh about or opinionated about, you know, sort of neoliberalism and kind of paying lip service to, notions of diversity in ways that don't actually, you know, sort of change the conditions of life for people who are marginalized and minoritized. But I will have to say, at the University of Arizona, one of the things that kind of happened is like because of, um, you know, I would say because of changes in the way higher education works and like less state support for higher education, and being in this particular state where there's not a lot of state money that goes into the state university, you know, it's very kind of like almost like quasi privatized. The market drives everything. And it's like the people high up in the administration of the university were saying transgender studies, that's kind of like a hot topic and nobody else is doing <laughs> this. It's like this is a way that we can, you know, differentiate ourselves in the academic marketplace. It's like we could have the best transgender studies program in the world and, you know, nobody else has got one. So let's do it. You know, and it was just like, OK, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, here we go. You know. Yeah, I'm just excited about the sort of window of opportunity that we've had there, and I'm really eager to, um, you know, kind of make make a good thing of it. You know, it's it's uh, it's very exciting to have that many people um, on campus who are doing, you know, a really, you know, to me like critically engaged interdisciplinary work on on trans studies i mean things that run the gamut from the humanities to the social sciences to you know to uh, sort of the harder the harder sciences you know that some people have more of a focus on medicine and psychology and other people have more emphasis on culture um you know so it's a very broad spectrum approach to what we're doing uh, now, one of the reasons that we were excited to talk to you um, is because uh, you've done work in sort of science and technology and society and STS, uh, as well as trans studies. And um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, how those two fields have connected for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the first thing I would want to say is that... Um, you know, not all trans people um, sort of decide to transition medically, you know, it's like it's not just not all trans people like go the hormones and surgery route. Um, but, you know, that being said, a lot of people do, you know. Um, and so I think there's a there's a relationship between how is it possible to be a certain kind of trans person and histories of surgery and endocrinology, as well as histories of, um, you know, sort of medical discourses like, you know, scientific sexology, um, um, as well as, you know, kind of like forensic 
questions um, about psychology, you know, like is being trans a psychopathology? Why does it get thought of that way? Uh, so, you know, trying to, you know, to, to do what I think of as like an engaged activist kind of historical scholarship, basically saying like trans, where did that come from? And why is it like structured the way that it is? It requires engaging with, you know, history of medical sciences, as well as history of social sciences. And, you know, I would say like a, a sort of a deeper intellectual history about how certain kinds of scientific materialist notions of the body come to undergird or underpin the way that we socially categorize people's bodies and identities. So, you know, even though my my interest in trans whatever, you know, comes out of being a trans person and being trained as a historian, it absolutely engages at this really deep level with, you know, questions of science and technology, um, you know, and, you know, the history of like changing technological abilities to uh, intervene in in our bodies and to transform our bodies through through different kinds of medical and scientific technologies. Do you think that trans studies can provide a different way of thinking about technological change or vice versa? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, excuse me, I think I do. Um, but it, it can do that. Yeah. Um, you know, like one of the contemporary problems, you know, that I think trans people often face is that we're we're not considered to be really what we think of ourselves as. It's like, you can't really be a woman. You were born with, you know, a Y chromosome and have a penis. And the question then would be, well, you know, why is it that, you know, we've come to think about the relationship between some biological aspect of your body and social categorization in a certain way, it's like how how is it that you know the materiality of the body becomes the anchor for how we categorize um, you know categorize bodies according to to genders? It's like it could be done some other way. And as medical technology has changed, you know, over the years, it's like why is it that um, you know I think about it, it's like why is it that if you cut your body here and makes the statement about saying like, I think I'm an X instead of I'm a Y. And then a lawyer can, you know, like sign a piece of paper or a judge can put a stamp on a piece of paper and then you're quote unquote, really that thing. Like, how is it that that procedure became something that, that kind of has a, a reality effect to it? You know, how is it that the emergence of certain kinds of technology allows for people to make a claim about who they really are based on accessing a certain kind of technology. So like that then stages the other question of like, what's the relationship between technological change and the construction of certain kinds of truth or reality claims? So, you know, I think looking at transness kind of opens a window into these broader questions about technology, science, and reality, you know, if you kind of keep pushing on that question, it opens up other questions about, you know, like, could we imagine, um, 
you know, kind of like a postmodern way of thinking about gender and sexuality, just like we could imagine a non-Western way or a pre-modern way of organizing sexuality and gender really differently than we do. And what's the role of science and technology in changing the way that we think about these things? So, so yeah, you know, I would just say that thinking about transness kind of inevitably takes us to these questions about truth, science, and technology in ways that, you know, you might not expect when you first start thinking about the issues. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, as uh, we at Lady Science, we really think of um, history as a social justice project or that it can very much be a social justice project. Uh, and so I was wondering um, if you could say what you see as the relationship between social justice activism and the study of history uh, and uh, why they ma might matter to each other. Okay. Well, um, would it be okay with you if I read a couple of paragraphs from the book that I'm working on, which is called What Transpires Now, Transgender History and the Future We Need, which kind of gets into that. It's just like just a couple of paragraphs. Go yes, for it. please. Okay. All right. So this is the opening of the draft manuscript right now for this new, new book I'm working on about the relationship of trans in the present and why thinking about our history is something that's, you know, useful for thinking about <clears throat> social transformation. So here we go. Making our identities real is what we trans people do. And we bring our worlds along with us. This is our talent, our burden, our necessity, our gift. This is what transpires now. New realities emergent trans realities flowing across the gap that separates actuality from desire, flowing from what is to what will be. History is not the past. History is a story that we tell in the present, one that reaches back to conjoin what can be known of what has already transpired to our vision of whatever yet may come. History is not a fact, but a promise. It is the assurance that the future will be as different from the current moment as the current moment has become from all that has come before. History is a witness that bears testimony to the inescapability of difference and the inevitability of change. To write history can be more than stringing one brute fact after another to fill up the emptiness of time. It can be more than constructing a monument to the violence of the great and powerful, more than the satisfaction of a craving among the people for the sweet comfort of nostalgia at the end of a bitter day. To write history, for those of us who need another world, is to catch sight elsewhere of a radical possibility made visible by the light of a current calamity. History transpires in the here and now. It is the story that makes real, pasts that are unremembered and actions now unimagined in anticipation of futures that must be summoned forth from a present that demands our daily effort to shatter and transform it. 
so that's kind of how I think about the relationship between history and activism, uh, that it's that, you know, in if the world is such in the present that it is not organized in your own interests, that actually studying the past is the thing that shows you that radical difference is actually possible. The past is different than now. And it changed. It changed to these ways that you can, you know, materially, empirically recover. And that in and of itself, that inescapability of change is the promise that, you know, through our actions, the future can be different than now. It's like, because it's happened before. It's like that kind of change has happened before. We just have to kind of keep on making history. Um, that was really lovely. Thank you for reading that passage out of your book. Um, I definitely got a little teary-eyed listening to you. <laughs> um, so you've kind of... I'll tell, thank you. I'll tell my editor that it's working. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. I think uh, this, you know, this has been a rough week in the world. And yeah. that just... It meant a lot to me to hear it, to hear that today, this week, especially, yeah. I feel like. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're welcome. You know, it's like this book, you know, that I'm, I'm working on, it's like I, it's overdue, you know, it's, um, it's been a bit of a struggle. I usually write really fluidly and, um, you know, the, I started working on this book back in 2015 and I really thought in 2015, you know, it's like the, the book kind of came about in the, you know, post Caitlyn Jenner, you know, media barrage moment where, you know, my, my agent was saying like, I think this is a good moment to sort of write the big book on like trans. What's up with that? Why now? You know, and I thought you're right. And I could write that book, you know, and so <laughs> I was able to sell, you know, a nice, you know, get a nice contract for a, um, a trade you know, a trade book. It's not an academic book, but something aimed at a mass audience. And I really thought at that moment, it's like, as we were thinking about, you know, this is late Obama, this is like anticipating, a, you know, a Hillary Clinton presidency, kind of like a continuation of the same kind of, you know, federal government that we had had. Um, you know, I really thought the most important thing that I would be doing in the book was to, you know, basically say, it's like, yeah, it's like trans is like coming up, but, you know, don't over-celebrate liberal America. It's like, this isn't, you know, this is not just like, you know, the latest, you know, flavor of the month, diversity inclusion thing. It's like, there's still a lot of problems around trans. A lot of it has to do with race and class. And, you know, we just can't over-celebrate this and let's kind of get down into the weeds about, um, you know, about the kinds of structural violence and oppression that trans people face. It's not just all, you know, sort of, you know, feel good diversity inclusion stuff. You know, even though Laverne Cox looks fabulous on the cover of Time magazine, you know, like, <laughs> let's not, you know, right, right. So all of that. And then, you know, the election happens. And, you know, it's like that was that was like a book for like the previous historical era. It's like that is not the book that need needed to get written. And I really needed to rethink what I was doing. It's like and it, you know, what what, um, you know, sort of made me 
aware of is like, well, what's the relationship between what's happening in the present and the past that you need, you know? And so like, that was kind of actually where the current title of the book comes from. It's about, this is about what transpires now. It's about transgender history and the future that we need. And, you know, I really, um, you know, I mean, that paragraph that I read, it kind of draws on both, um, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, as well as um, um, Walter Benjamin. And, you know, there's another paragraph in that, the introduction, you know, where I quote Benjamin more directly. I say, the words that began this book deliberately evoke and echo sentiments expressed by the philosophers Friedrich Nietzsche and Walter Benjamin in their writings on the uses and abuses of history for the present and on the perpetually available capacity nestled within each current moment for our deep narratives of change over time to become undone and rewoven. It's possible, Benjamin famously said, to take control of a memory as it flashes in a moment of danger. Writing in 1940, during the Nazi reign over Europe, his view of history resonates deeply today. Quote, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the emergency situation in which we live is the rule. We must arrive at a concept of history which corresponds to this. Then it will become clear that the task before us is the introduction of a real state of emergency and our position in the struggle against fascism will thereby improve. So, you know, just like, yes, thank you, Walter Benjamin. That is exactly what we're doing now. It's like, I mean, that's exactly what I'm trying to do is to like develop a concept of history that is engaged in the present with a fight against fascism, you know, yeah. and it's not, it's yeah. not exactly, you know, a hundred percent, you know, historically accurate comparison. It's like fascism in the thirties was one thing. And I think what's happening now, I mean, it's, it's vile. It's, um, it's, you know, really scary. It's authoritarian. It's racist. You know, it's, it's like, it's not exactly, fascism it's a new thing you know it's a new thing that we need to like figure out how what's wrong now you know how we develop an analytic for that and we you know develop an analysis and a, an action plan you know for for what we're going to how do you resist what's happening now and so you know i don't think of doing historical scholarship as a kind of escapism it's not like going back to a time before the troubles and wanting to live there you know it's 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 a way of of engaging you know it's a way of engaging with the history of the present and um you know it's, it's kind of like doing a deep history of the present mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. uh when is that book supposed to come out as soon as I finish writing it, um, okay. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, I I um, I'm on leave of absence uh, from my job in the fall, so that I can just kind of keep plowing through. You know, I spend spending about six hours a day writing right now, and I will be able to do that through the end of the year. And it's, I'm really hoping, you know, to have the complete draft done by, you know, 
by January, by the beginning of the year. And then, you know, I'm sure there'll be some, you know, revisions or whatever, but I'm, I'm anticipating that, um, you know, the book's going to be out in 2019, you know, in, in kind of in time to be part of, um, you know, conversation in the, you know, presidential election year in 2020, you know, that's kind of what I'm, I'm aiming for at this time. Awesome. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely keep up with the progress of your book. Um, Thanks. And hopefully we can have you back on when your book comes out. Um, yeah. You know where to reach me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we already kind of covered the next question that I had. So Rebecca, if you want to yeah. go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just wondering if um, in your career you have gotten pushback for seeing yourself as both an activist and a scholar. Um, you know, I would say surprisingly not so much. I mean, you must not uh, be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's like, I have a Twitter, I have a Twitter account, uh, and I lurk, but it's like, I don't post on Twitter a lot. Cause I just think, um, you know, social media is really useful. It's like, I love, you know, seeing what's happening there, but it's, it's, um, it's not a place to have a reasoned conversation about anything. And so, you know, I just kind of keep my head down on social media for the most part. Um, and don't, you know, I try to, you know, not in engage in, you know, a lot of, you know, actual discussion, on Twitter, you know, Facebook, you know, it's like, because my Facebook, it's more like, you know, people that I actually know and isn't quite so public. Twitter mm -hmm. is just, you know, it's, you're just showing your underwear to everybody. It's just out there, <laughs> hanging out there. Um, and so, but you know, it's, I mean, yeah, just like, you know, I, you know, I see stuff about me on Tumblr and, you know, it's like, it's, Everybody, everybody can have a problem about something, and particularly on trans issues. It's like I think because trans community is in many ways very there's um, a a lot of trauma, you know, a lot of historical trauma, a lot of um, uh, you know, people are you know have been impacted by violence, and it's just you know sometimes people are fragile or the easily triggered and you know I totally you know I see that I have compassion for that um but it doesn't you know it doesn't make for easy conversations sometimes and you know you just know like whatever you say in public it's going to be wrong somebody's going to have a problem with it you know and yet I would say that for the most part you know um you know I feel like I I have a pretty good response in the public you know just like there will be some people who say like Susan Stryker, she's like, she's old and she's white and she's, you know, it's like, she's got these elitist tendencies and other people will be like, for a white chick, she actually gets some of the, you know, race and class stuff right, you know? So it's like, it's just, it's all over the map, you know? It's like, you can't please everybody, you know? I get a lot of positive feedback, you know? I get criticism, I try to take the criticism really seriously if there's something substantive there. It's like I always want to like be open to correction. And, you know, I want to like let what I think of as the more, um, you know, baseless and triggered kinds of reaction against me sometimes just sort of roll off my back. You know, you can't be too 
thin skins, you know, world's a big place and you're not going to please everybody. Um, uh, but you know, but kind of in the scholarly world, um, you know, I, you know, I, I do lots of different kinds of writing, you know, it's like some of the work that I do is that kind of, you know, incomprehensible post-structuralist jargony stuff that, you know, almost everybody except the people who actually do it hate, um, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, I can totally hold my own, you know, in that kind of, you know, cultural theory conversation. But, you know, I also think that it's, um, it's really important to do work that is public facing and not just sort of professional or specialist facing. Um, I think some of that comes from working outside the academy for so long. You know, like, like you mentioned, I'm a filmmaker. I've, you know, worked in the nonprofit sector. I've been an independent scholar, you know, just like it was not an easy path for me getting into academia, you know, because of, you know, even though I was well-trained, it's like because of the stigma and discrimination around trans issues, it took me like 15 years post PhD to be able to get an academic job. Uh, so I worked a lot in the public sector and I really value being able to do public facing work. But part of that, like, because I do value the kind of sort of the translational work of taking specialist knowledge and making it into sort of news you can use in, you know, in daily life, there are some academics who I would say are usually those academics who don't have the aptitude for doing anything public facing, who want to like, <laughs> maybe like think of me as more of a popularizer um, <laughs> of other people's work. And it's like, you know, and that's fine. You know, it's like, you know, I'm tenured. I don't care. You know, just like <laughs> I do the work that, you know, matters to me. And some of it is like really theoretical some of it's like really wonky kinds of, you know, historical work. Some of it's more applied sorts of policy work. And, you know, some of it is about, you know, public storytelling that becomes part of the, you know, the larger cultural conversation. So, you know, it's like I think of, you know, I just think I have a good blend of, um sort of an activist sensibility and a, a, a public facing part of my work combined with the totally nerdy, wonky, specialist academic stuff. And I just try to make it all, you know, feed off each other as much as possible. And don't worry so much about what people think. <laughs> I think that's good advice for especially us at Lady Science, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who do probably spend entirely too much time on Twitter. Oh, um, yeah. arguing with people we shouldn't bother arguing with for the 50th time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, sometimes it just gets under your skin. You can't help it, right? So, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah um, the more you can go to that namaste place, you know, just the, the better, the better it is for us all. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have any other questions. Do you, Rebecca? Uh, I do not. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again for joining us. I'm really glad that we were able to figure out a time to to talk, and we'll definitely be looking forward to your upcoming book. Well, thanks so much. And yeah. if you can't if you can't wait, I do have this other book called Transgender History. Uh, came out from Seal Press. There was um, I wrote it back in 2008, but there's a revised second edition that came out 
last year. You can get it at your independent bookstore locally or if you must through Amazon. Um, (laughs) And um, yeah, it's like a good, you know, basic intro to um, to trans history that, you know, totally, you know, touches on the history of science and medicine, as well as sort of the social history of, of trans political movements. So that is something that might appeal to your listenership. Awesome. We'll include that in the show notes as well. So uh, everyone will be able to find find you and find your work. Um, well, um, I guess I guess that's it. We hope you liked this bonus episode today. And if you did, be sure that you head right on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review so that other people can listen to us. And if you like getting this bonus content, be sure that you check out our summer pledge drive, which is going through June and July. You can find details on patreon.com slash ladyscience. We have reached our first goal of $400, so we will be starting up an Instagram account where you will find podcast teaser teaser trailers, uh, video, stories, and more. Um, Our next goal, though, is going to be more bonus podcast content, extra interviews, cut-for-time episodes, that type of thing. So be sure you check us out. Give us a few bucks a month if you've got it. If not, please do share this information with your networks. Um, again, it's patreon.com slash lady science. And if you have questions about the segment today, tweet us at at lady X science or hashtag lady pod to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article and more visit ladyscience.com. Uh, we are an independent magazine and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon, like I just talked about or through one-time donations, which we also appreciate, just visit ladyscience.com donate. Until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at at LadyXScience. Science.